Welcome to Nutria Performing Arts Stories. I'm Dwayne Burkhardt. In part two of my interview with actor and author Rain Wilson, Rain and I finish our discussion about his film career. And then, of course, we do talk about The Office. And we finish by starting our discussion about his other career as a best selling author. Here is part two of my interview with Rain Wilson. And we are back. We're talking with actor and author and, again, philanthropist Rain Wilson. We have lots to talk about still, but we need to talk about the elephant in the room. But one, I want to talk, before we leave your film career behind, I'm going to tell you something, and you can tell me if you just think it's weird or stupid or, or whatever. But in terms of your film career, I want, to, I want to highlight one role that you may go, oh, whatever, but I thought was really cool for you. And that is, I really enjoyed watching The Rocker. And I'll tell you why. It was a film where you were the anchor. You're the center of the cast. The whole film depends on kind of your performance. And you nail it. You hold that cast together. You're the glue. And it kind of works. And so as someone watching you, as someone as somebody watching the new Trier guy, you know, in a film, it's really cool to see that for you and to see you being given a chance to kind of be the centerpiece because you do a lot of character stuff that's really cool but that was a moment where you're the guy was it different for you to be the guy and was that more fun or less fun uh stressful or great or what or all of those things yeah it's um thanks for bringing that up uh, i talk about it in, in my book because it was really my first starring role I mean, it was really like my name above the title and like I'm in every scene and driving the movie and and you so rarely get an opportunity to do that, especially if you're a character guy, you know, which essentially I'm a character guy. So I just was so lucky to get it. It was right at the height of the office when the office was really just taking off 2008, 2009. And it was bruising to shoot. We had to shoot the whole thing in like three and a half weeks. And uh, it was crazy had an amazing cast christina applegate and will arnett emma stone emma stone and, and josh gad yeah yeah, yeah. Bra bradley cooper was in it jeff garland jane lynch yeah the list goes on and on it was an incredible cast you know it, it was it was fun to do and it was one of those things where it completely bombed really i did not remember that yeah because it didn't bomb for me well i appreciate that but it really did and then when super did the same thing it was I mean, that was a really cheap movie, but it also didn't like have big box office. So those were those were big struggles. I put a lot of myself into it and it was and that's and it's hard. Those opportunities are, come pretty, pretty rarely. But, you know, art is long, as they say, one of my favorite quotes. And uh, I don't even know that it's art. I think it's a good movie. People really like it. People share it with their kids. And it's a it's kind of a cult favorite and, and people still enjoy watching it to this day. So uh, absolutely. They missed it. And for anybody who has, is listening to the to the pod and has not seen this film, you have missed something that you have to go back and see because it is a it's a brilliant comedy. It's funny. It's touching. It is everything that you want in a feel good film. And uh, you got to see it. Oh, thanks for the plug. So, yeah, <laughs> a few years late, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah, Th 13 years, 14 years later, but I'll take it. Hey, <laughs> I take it. All right. So let's let's uh, let's let's address the elephant in the room. Let's talk TV now. 
Um, I read somewhere that you did not originally audition for the part of Dwight. Is that is that correct? Well, it's not entirely correct. I auditioned for both Dwight and for Michael. Oh, okay. So I auditioned for the both roles, but it was very clear to me that Dwight was the the right one. My my Michael audition was really pretty awful. I just did a Ricky Gervais interpretation. I was such a huge fan of the English office at the time and had seen all the episodes and just thought Ricky was beyond brilliant. So I couldn't really picture the role outside of how Ricky did it. And I think Steve Carell was really brilliant in that he he never watched The English Office. He may have now, but when we were first shooting it, he didn't want to see Ricky's version because he didn't want to like pick up. He didn't want to suddenly be doing pieces of it, right? Yeah, and that's why Michael Scott is is so different than David Brent. You know, they're such unique and uh, vital interpretations of a you know of a clueless narcissistic boss, but they're they're just very very different. So, but I really knew that Dwight was my part. I I I killed the audition, and I was like, "There's there's no one else that can play this. I know this role. I know exactly how this role needs to be played." And I had just come off the success of being on Six Feet Under on HBO. I had been on 13 episodes of Six Feet Under. And so i that's right when HBO was just taking off. The Wire was on, starring Jim True, right. another uh, new Trier grad, obviously, Jim True Frost. And, um, you know, Sopranos were on and um, Entourage and Sex in the City. And that was all, everyone was watching HBO. This was a new gold ushered in the golden age of te television and and i happened to be so luckily on that show uh six feet under so that helped me land the role so you get the role and and i'm assuming and you knew you nailed it and you kind of knew this is a role of a lifetime thing at what point in the incredible eight-year run of this show did you realize oh my god this this is it this is going to become wildly successful i'm i've 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 found my spot you know this is the thing yeah it, it's it's an amazing thing because again looking at my timeline and people don't really realize this like the office first launched in 2004 so that's 20 years after new trier new trier right wow 20 years after graduating from high school, right. I land my first series regular role. Like art is long. It takes a long time. Wow. Especially when you're a character guy, right? You know, if you're you're gorgeous and 23, like you can get scooped up for a show right away. But I'm neither of those things. So it was funny when we were shooting some of the first episodes, we went out to lunch with Steve. It was me, John, Jenna, and Steve. And, and Steve was like, you know, this very well could be like the show that defines all of us till the end of time. Like it doesn't matter what other work we do, this is going to be what we're known for. So he kind of was very prescient. Did you have that feeling too, or was it something that came later? I hadn't, I had no idea. I had done a couple of pilots before. I don't know that any of them had been picked up. So we got picked up for six episodes initially. Um, I was just so psyched to, to be able to put a little money in the bank, pay off some student loans and credit card debts and my car loan. And I, I was a little bit lost in a whirlwind right then. But then it was a real struggle early on. Like we aired those six. They didn't do very well. 
you could go you can go back and look those early reviews of the office were not great reviews and they compared us unfavorably to the british office at every turn and then we were barely picked up for like i think they ordered like five more episodes for season two and then like one more and then another like three or four after that we were just barely cobbling it together there's one executive at nbc named kevin riley he was really our champion and no one else really cared about the show or wanted the show they wanted friends they wanted big splashy bright funny good-looking cast broad uh reach comedies and they're like you know you have to remember that at the time on network to have single camera documentary style bad lighting odd looking actors you know no jokes really just kind of like awkward pauses like the humor comes from a whole different source you know it's not there's no kind of bum 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 kind of sitcom jokes no laugh track no gag lines right yeah it was it, it was really revolutionary at the time but then it started catching on and our ratings were just kind of it was this thing there was this ratings hotline and our show would i think we first were on tuesday nights so like wednesday at like 11 you could call the hotline and find out what the ratings were the night before and we would all wait and then call and be like did we go up did we go up and we were always just like ticked up just a little little bit and i was like oh my god that's awesome and then all of a sudden and i don't know why no one ever told us about this they made a giant sign a giant office mural uh outside of the nbc offices in burbank on bob hope boulevard and what someone i think on the crew saw it took a picture printed out the picture and uh we hung it on the wall i think that picture stayed on the wall of where we shot for all eight or nine seasons and um that then we knew and then you know there's no feeling better than that um as an actor because it's like oh my god we're on and we're gonna be on for a while you know and then we won the emmy for that year and the ratings just kept going up and we were kind of the talk of the town i'm like in quite honestly for me my number one thought was like oh phew i can buy a house you know i can i could pay off my student loans and like and it was just a sigh of relief after almost 20 years of really struggling and not not being sure i didn't have the trust fund i had was not sure where rent was coming from for a whole lot of that time I'm glad you mentioned that because you you touch on a couple of things that are really central to understanding the choice of performing arts in a career and you know and as you just noted even after you're part of a hit there's still a space between that time when you're part of a hit and you're you're still not really necessarily comfortable because <laughs> you're still you're still trying to pay off the car and you're still trying you know, there's there's a lot of things going on as you're going through that process and I think that people often think that it's a lot more instantaneous than that and it's it's just not so i think that's that's cool mm. we're gonna we're gonna take one more break real, real quick we are talking with rain wilson and when we come back we are going to talk about the books and other stuff but i have one other thing about tv that i want to ask him so we'll be right back this episode of nutria performing art stories is being brought to you by my new book Rags, Riches, and Roller Coasters, My Life as a Serial Entrepreneur, by Dwayne Burkhardt. The book chronicles my incredible 25-year roller coaster ride during my crazy, 
difficult, wonderful, tragic, and amazing years as a small business entrepreneur. The book is available at Amazon.com in ebook, paperback, and hardback. Get your copy today. We're back. We are talking with Rain Wilson. Rain, before we talk about the books, I have to ask one more question, and you're going to need to give me a, a moment to build up to this. So, first, I strongly believe that there are moments in the history of film and television where an actor and a role are just perfectly married to one another. And second, I also think that it's extremely challenging to take on a role that someone else has already made famous. And then third, it is almost impossible for a person who takes on such a role to then transcend the original. Now, an example that I would give you for someone who's done that is your office castmate, Steve Carell, who took on the role of Maxwell Smart in the 2008 film version of Get Smart. And much as I absolutely love Don Adams, and I agree that he defined the role, I watched Carell do that, and I thought he took it further and did it better. And that was amazing. And the reason I mention that is because I feel like you had one of those moments too. In the mid-1960s, character actor Roger Carmel created Harry Mudd, this kind of iconic rascal pirate con man in the original Star Trek. In 2017, you took on that role and somehow managed to take the best parts of his performance but then mixed it in with the sort of visceral, updated, um, in some ways darker, but really this far more three-dimensional version of the character. And I thought it was absolutely brilliant. So I have to ask you, is there any chance that you are going to play Harry Mudd again? I would love to play Harry Mudd again. Thank you for your kind words. Um, that was such a joy for me to do. You have no idea. Like, I was a huge Trekkie fan growing up, and uh, I met with the producers on the new Star Trek Discovery they were launching back in the day, five, six, seven years ago. And then they offered me just the two episodes as, as Harry Mudd. And to just to be able to play like a crazy space rascal, you know, based on that... Uh, indelible performance uh from the years from the 60s was it was incredible and to get to be on you know a starship sit in the captain's chair fire a phaser get beamed up you know all of that just to be in the star trek universe in some way shape or form was i mean beyond my wildest dreams and uh you know i've the, what happened with Discoveries is, I don't know how much you watched the show, but... I'm a humongous Star Trek nerd. I have watched all of them. All of them. <laughs> all of them. So they kept jumping like universes, and then they were in different... Right. 2,000 years ahead and behind. and diff So it didn't really make sense. It didn't really track. And then I did write the producers of the new Star Trek, and I think their feeling is that that's before... The Enterprise. So, if there was a Harry Mud, it would be a younger Harry Mud. It would be like twenty-five-year-old hair or thirty-year-old Harry Mud, not fifties Harry Mud, because uh, Captain Pike was years before Kirk. So, um, right. but there was a one of the things I got to do is uh, very few people have seen it, but I got to do a short Star Trek. Star Trek shorts. Oh yeah, yeah. I watched it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got to direct it and star in that, and that was. Really, that was one of my 
high points of of my career. But thank you for your kind words. It was really so much fun. All right, so I'm I'm I've got your six here. I'm I'm gonna pen a a, a a strongly worded email to the producers of Strange New Worlds tonight, and I'm gonna note to them that in fact, Strange New Worlds is supposed to take place less than ten years before Kirk takes over as captain of the Enterprise, and therefore, at at best. We're talking about a you know forties something Harry Mudd. Mid forties, sure, yeah. Okay, I'm yeah. sure you can still. I'm still you can you can still get in there. So, um, yeah. It, again, for for those of us who are all giant Star Trek nerds, um, it was it, it just it's great and to be able to. Uh, I'm sure for you also being a Star Trek fan, just to be able to be part of that world, just absolutely um, joyous. Yeah, amazing. it was absolutely. So let's uh, let's talk about writing now, which is something else that you and I have in common. Your first book, The Bassoon King, which you mentioned earlier, is an autobiography. And incidentally, regarding the bassoon itself, our mutual friend Liz Butler, now Liz Burns, uh, made me promise to say hello to you for her. So, Oh, nice. So what made you decide to start writing? What was the impetus for you, the, the, the creative part of you that said, oh, you know what? Because as somebody else who's written several books myself... I know what a torturous procedure that can yeah. that can be. So what led you to that moment of, oh my God, I I I must create in this way, I must write? Well, uh my first book actually was a kind of creative workbook that I wrote in conjunction with the founders of a digital media and website and YouTube channel company called Soul Pancake. Uh, so we had a book called Soul Pancake. Here's a copy. Soul Pancake Chew on Life's Big Questions. Huge, hugely successful YouTube channel, right? Like a billion views. But yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's had a, a billion video views. We we made 3,500 3, pieces of content. And we had this book that was on the New York Times bestseller list. It's a really fun kind of workbook about big questions. And it's interactive for 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 young people. And I wrote the introduction to that. And as I wrote the introduction... I was like, you know, there's a story here. I, I really could write my story. I mean, not 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 only do I have like funny little showbiz stories, but going from this pimply nerdy kid um, in suburban Seattle to discovering acting to, you know, having a career and kind of what I learned along the way. And, and also a little bit about my, you know, uh, I had a spiritual journey along those lines. And remember, we moved to the North Shore because my parents were Baha'is. I grew up Baha'i, and I left the Baha'i faith like so many young people leave their religion of their of their parents, and went through a lot of dark nights of the soul in my twenties and thirties, and came back to the Baha'i faith. and And I thought that this was an interesting way to tell that story as well. It could be, you know, mostly a comedic tale of my life, but also a little bit about what I went through and what I was thinking about and, you know, uh, and about my, my faith journey. So there was just a little touch of that in the intro to the Soul Pancake book. So um, when The Office was winding up, I pitched it and The Office was still very popular at the time and I, I got a nice uh, deal to write it. So I, I just thought it would be a really fun side project. And, you know, it took me took me a couple years and yeah so that was that was really a lot of fun and then when i did that book you know the the whole spiritual journey thing made me think about you know all of the stuff i had been i'd been doing a lot of talking about spiritual concepts and life and the soul and the meaning of life and and love and god and the purpose of creation and you know a lot of kind of big concepts so 
which some of those I touched on real lightly in The Bassoon King. And that's when I was thinking like, you know, I really want to write a book that delves into the big ideas that I've been pondering for a good, you know, over 25 years, 25, 30 years. So that's Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution, which is the most recent one. But that one almost killed me. It, it, it was, took me three years and it was so hard and, but really ultimately rewarding. And, and it's been great to get it out into the world and have people reading it. They seem to really be enjoying it. We, and, and we will talk about that. We're going to talk about the, the most recent book. When we come back, we are talking now with author Rain Wilson, and we'll be back. And that, my friends, is where we have to end the podcast this week. But please join us again next week when Rain and I will talk about his new book, Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. We'll also talk about his humanitarian work with Lee Day Haiti. And then, as we always do, we'll return to Nutrier and talk about WNTH and our one time on stage together. But for now, Nutrier Performing Arts Stories is a copyrighted production of Narratives, LLC. It is written, directed, produced, and edited like a guy who really wants the Paramount people to get their act together and have Rain play Harry Mudd again, by yours truly, Dwayne Burkhardt. For more information, or to suggest a guest or sponsor for our podcast, please email info at NutrierPADStories.com. And please join us next week for part three of our season two premiere, as I finish my interview with one of the great character actors of our time, Rain Wilson. Until then, thanks for listening. Please hit the subscribe button, and we'll see you next time.